Hello, my name is James, and I'm a grumbler. Now, clearly, many of you have never been to an Alcoholics Anonymous or some kind of 12-step meeting, because otherwise you'd know when somebody comes to a meeting like that, and they're seeking accountability, not judgment from people, we'll normally all get together in a circle, and somebody will start out by saying something like that, hello, my name is James, and I'm a grumbler. And everybody in the circle will respond, hello, James. And so I'm going to give us another shot at this. Let's get into a big circle. No, let's not do that. That would be hard to do in this room. But let me introduce myself again, and I'm going to give you that opportunity to respond like we're in a meeting together. Hello, my name is James, and I'm a grumbler. Oh, good. Now I feel safe. Now I feel like we're in this together. My name is James, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Cape Bible Chapel, and I'm glad that you're here whether you knew you were coming to a meeting or not. And it really makes me wonder if that's how we'd advertise this. If we'd said, hey, we're going to have a Grumblers Anonymous meeting, would anybody show up? Especially in light of the holiday that we celebrated this week. Would any of us admit that we're grumblers and complainers? Probably because we'd have trouble confessing that. We're going to be intentional here, and we're going to take a little break. Just one week break out of our study in this series on Luke. And we're going to spend this time talking about what is honestly the opposite of thankfulness. We're going to talk about grumbling. And God has met me here. I've been on a roller coaster ride over the last several days during this week that we typically pause, you know, and, and devote at least some portion of a day to being thankful before we eat so much that we enter into some kind of pumpkin pie and turkey coma and pass out in front of the TV or, or go sprinting out for some black Thursday night sale on a TV, whatever it is. This past Thursday was Thanksgiving Day. And so I'm wondering, did we give thanks? And if we did, did we truly give thanks in the way that the God of the universe desires that we would give thanks? If you know me, I'm a huge fan of the Bible. I believe it's God's love letter to us, the people he created. But if I'm honest, when I'm painfully honest, there are parts of the Bible that I really struggle with. And I'll read them, and, and what? I'll grumble. I grumble over verses like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. The Apostle Paul teaches, in everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Ouch, really? Come on, God. Why'd you have to put that in there? Give thanks in everything? And sometimes I know I can really light into God then, right? Okay, God, yeah, give thanks in everything. So I should give thanks that my mom died of cancer? I should give thanks that my dad lost his job at Christmas? What about divorce? God, what about substance abuse? What about physical abuse. See, this is a real question, isn't it? All of a sudden, this is real. This is what we're supposed to do with God's Word, is figure out how to apply it to our lives, figure out how to apply it in our lives in the way where He gets all the glory. But it's tough, right? I'm thankful today for God's Word, but it's tough. I've been hurt before by people who say they care for me. I bet you have too. People do die every day, illnesses and accidents. Why is it God's will that we give thanks in everything? Why? Because when we do, that's when we show that we desire to abide in relationship with him. That's when we show that we trust him, even when we can't totally grasp what he's up to. A heart of thankfulness, true gratitude, shows that we're at least on the path to grasping who God is. 
we got to remember God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He works all things together for good. And I'm not spouting some lines from a motivational speech. Those are things we can be certain of from God's Word. And so when we're thankful, then we can demonstrate maturity and growth and trust and dependence on God. There's a commentator named Peter O'Brien. He wrote this. I love this quote. Thanksgiving is almost a synonym for the Christian life. It's the response of gratitude to God's saving activity in creation and redemption and thus a recognition that he is the ultimate source of every single blessing. And yes, that sounds nice, but I'm a grumbler. And so we grumblers say, well, yeah, that sounds swell, God. We recognize you're the source of all blessings. What about all the crud that happens in our life? And this is where I've been so convicted this week. God, through his Holy Spirit, and then through my wife, who can get my attention in ways even the Holy Spirit has trouble. God has smacked me in the face, and he's asked me repeatedly, often with a still, small voice, James, are you thankful to me in all things? Because this past week I was not. But God, (laughs) he's drawn me back. Took me to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 where Joseph's brothers come to him out of real concern. I mean, they'd done some horrible stuff to Joseph. We don't have time to read that this week, but, but I hope you do on your own because it's an amazing story. Joseph's brothers were wicked, and, and now they're in this spot where Joseph is in a position of strength and authority. And his brothers are worried, uh-oh, it's going to be time to repay a little evil for evil here. But instead, Joseph says this. He says, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. It's an incredible verse if you understand the context there. The interpretation is very clear. Joseph's saying, hey, instead of dying or being derailed at some point in time by any of these horrible things that had happened to him, and do read the story, it's ridiculous. It's soap opera crazy. Instead, Joseph ends up as the number two guy in all of Egypt, and he's able to store up food during this great famine, and so the people didn't starve to death. That's the interpretation. But the application is just as clear. Bad things will happen. Evil things, wicked things will surround us in this life, on this earth, because we're sinful people, because we live in this fallen world. But none of those things... Hear me on this. None of those things are outside of God's sovereignty. He can and he does use all those things to accomplish his will. Things we think are great and find it so easy to give thanks for and things that we think are lousy. And and we really struggle. We couldn't imagine giving thanks for them. So we're here at the meeting today. Examine your life. Examine your situation right now and ask, Are your circumstances hard? Are you maybe facing the consequences of some bad decisions? And have you become a grumbler instead of a thanksgiver? Well, if you have, it's good that you showed up at the meeting today. And I'm going to say something. I'm going to tell you right now, it's going to sound pretty harsh. So before I say it, I want you guys to understand, and those of you who are here all the time, I don't think I'd have a hard time convincing you of this. I love you guys. 
And so I'm going to tell you this. Please know that I love you. And also know that I had to preach this to myself every day this week. I had to preach it Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday on Thanksgiving. I said it to myself before I came to church this morning. Are you ready? Here's the hard truth in love. When you grumble, when I grumble, what we're revealing is that we have a problem with God. Now, we may be aiming our grumbling in a million different directions, but at the heart of it, what we're truly saying is that we have a problem in our relationship with God. And this week, I grumbled. And when I grumbled, I was not grasping what God is up to. I wasn't being thankful at all. I was being accusatory. That's an embarrassing thing to admit here in the meeting, but I feel safe. And God is working on me. But I've had to preach this to myself every day this week. I don't have this all figured out yet. I think probably as long as I'm around, I'm going to have to go to a GA meeting somewhere. When I grumble, I'm accusing God. Now, folks who don't profess to follow Christ will accuse God all the time. It's no big deal for them. That's the language that you hear from folks who say things like this. Well, if there's a loving God, why is there such evil and suffering and injustice in the world? Why is there sex trafficking and genocide and terrorism? And I think I get it. And I think I get the angst and the frustration and the hurt behind those kind of comments because those things are real, right? They impact people. But I always want to respond when people throw God under the bus like that, when they accuse God of taking a nap and missing all the suffering that's going on in the world, I want to say, how does removing God from the equation help to solve those very real problems? And the reality is that I don't know how God uses all things together for good. I can't know. But I do know this for sure. There's a lot greater peace. There's a lot greater hope in knowing and in trusting that he will than in claiming there really is no God. It's the very best thing we can hope for is a brutal, hopeless, pointless world where the strong always defeat the weak and and their victims. That's it. There's no point to suffering. There's no growth in persevering through trials. There'll be no judgment to come. Do do we understand how hopeless a worldview that is? But we live where we live, and so that's the view we see from a lot of people in this world but I don't have to go there because God has called me to himself. I don't think I'll ever get tired of saying that. By grace and through faith, God has called me to himself so I don't have to be like the world. God has overcome this world. So I want to be different. I want to be a shining light in this crooked and dark world. And if I want to do that, then I've got to be reminded that I'm supposed to give thanks in all things. I've got to confess that I'm a grumbler. And so if you've ever been part of a 12-step meeting, you know that after I introduce myself, normally I'll share a little bit of my story. And so join me, if you would, in the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And let's look at the beginning of chapter 20 together. I'm going to use this parable today as my story because, honestly, it's my story. (laughs) And when we get done today, maybe you'll recognize it as your story as well. Now, truthfully, I think a lot of people share in this grumbling story. You don't have to dig real deep into the Bible to see examples of a grumbling spirit all over the place. But one of the clearest pictures comes from God's chosen people. These are our friends, the Israelites. And God used Moses 
to deliver them from slavery in Egypt. Please remember, that's the situation they were in. They were slaves in Egypt, and God favored them. And he showed grace and mercy to them, and he made the way for them to be saved. And in thankful reply, we hear this type of spirit from the people. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, so the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what should we drink? That's probably only a few folks, right? Surely not everybody there was a grumbler, you think? Check out Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Whoops. But for sure they were thankful that they were being rescued from slavery, right? I mean, for sure they were thankful to be alive. Wouldn't you think? Look at Numbers chapter 14, verse 2. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Wow. These folks have elevated grumbling and complaining to an art form. There's the possibility, if it were an Olympic event, they're going for the gold in this. They're grumblers. Now, actually, it's pretty easy to spot a grumbler. We don't normally have to wear a medal around our necks. You look it up in the dictionary. Definition has my picture next to it. It says, to grumble is to show one's critical attitude, to murmur or mutter or make complaining remarks or noises and discontent. I love this. Often under one's breath. You notice that? A lot of our grumbling and complaining is done under our breath. Something happens we don't like, and we go, I can't believe that. Somebody goes, what? What did you say? Oh, nothing. Oh, you said something. (laughs) You just said it in a very, very low voice. It's not really that hard to spot one of our kind. And the Israelites, they were complainers. They grumbled over food and water and the fact that they didn't like the wilderness and that Moses was a bad leader, and I get that. They had a tough go of it for sure. But they grumbled so much that grumbling became their identity. So then they grumbled about everything. They grumbled about foolish things. They grumbled that it would have been better for them to be back in slavery in Egypt. And so here's the reality. They were grumbling because they thought God had let them down. They didn't have the vision to see that God works all things together for good. So they had a problem with God. So that's their story. That's not totally my story. My story is similar to that. I think you'll recognize for sure there are different types of grumblers and complainers. My particular story is a little better reflected there in Matthew chapter 20. See, these folks in the wilderness, let's be honest, they had big issues. They could have died of thirst or hunger. They were in the middle of this major trial. And what I've learned about myself in the past and what I've been reminded of this week is that I'm normally pretty aware when a major trial comes along that God is trying to get my attention. (laughs) So he's going to get out his big old frying pan and he's going to clang me upside the head and he's going to go, hey, I need you here. And so I'll pay attention to that. I get that. But in my story, where I struggle more, it seems like, is in the day-to-day stuff, in the little trials. I grumble in the minor things. That's where I can so easily forget what God is up to and where he's working. You guys like me in that? I'm driving, and I get upset, and I go, why is this guy driving 12 miles an hour in the fast lane? I'm at the grocery store, and I'm in the checkout line, and I'm in the 10 items or less, and I counted this dude in front of me. He's got 16 items. And I just get really upset over goofy little things like that. 
I can struggle in those scenarios. I've been replacing all the baseboard trim in my house this past week. And that's the kind of project I usually like because it's real hands-on. I like doing that kind of stuff. And when you get done, you step back, and it looks really nice. And there's a finite amount of baseboard trim in my house, so I know I'll be done at some point in time. I love all these things. But the other night, when I was already in a real bad way from grumbling and complaining, I ran into this little problem. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fireplace down in my basement, and I was trying to replace the trim around the corner of the fireplace. And, you know, most of the time when you get to something like this, that corner's at a 90-degree angle. And so I cut my two little pieces with a 45-degree angle, but somehow they built my house, and it's like an 87-degree angle, you know, on that cut. So the, the biggest problem, I think, is that my miter saw is up in the garage, and I was working down in the basement. And so I'd make my cuts up in the garage, and then I'd walk the 13 steps down to the basement. Believe me, I counted after a few times. And, and I'd flop my large self down on the floor, and I'd try and get this piece to work out, and it wouldn't work. So I'd make a little mark, and I'd walk back upstairs, and I'd trim a piece off, and I'd come back down again, and I'd flop on the floor, and it wouldn't work. And if you guys have ever done a project like this, you know what I did. Eventually, I got to the spot where I trimmed just a little bit too much off, and then there was a gap. And that's why these pieces are here with me today, because I had to go up and start all over again. And if I'm real honest, and I feel we've got this connection, we're here in the meeting together, I can tell you, I said some things I shouldn't have said. I said some words that pastors don't normally say. Now, I said them under my breath. <laughs> it's really nobody but God, and now you guys know, but, but this is what I'm reminded of. I'm a grumbler. In those kind of situations, I've got to stop and remember to thank God in all things because he's in control. I guarantee he was trying to teach me something right then. He's working all things together for good. So maybe... I'm not as much like the Israelites in the wilderness with their life or death physical trial. But Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, this is my kind of story. This is a parable in Scripture. Parables are illustrations or metaphors that Jesus would use, and he'd employ them to help people better understand some really hard teaching about the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus would teach some serious doctrine, right, some hard theology. And then he'd come along and illustrate it with a parable so that the folks could more easily grasp and apply what the teaching was about. And so this parable in Matthew chapter 20, it comes on the heels of the story about a rich young ruler who on the surface appeared to have everything going for him, right? He was rich and young and a ruler. Just circumstantially, it looked like this guy was going to be okay. But if you read Matthew chapter 19, he walks away from the offer of salvation. It's a sad story. And Jesus' disciples are there, and they're grumbling a little bit. And they're asking a form of a question that people still ask today. Maybe you've asked it before. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why is this rich young ruler any of those things, rich or young or a ruler? Why did he deserve to have those things happen? And the disciples are grumbling because they're saying, well, we sacrificed everything to follow you, Jesus. And so they're wondering out loud if there's going to be any reward for that. And so their question reveals they'd lost sight of the big picture. They, they ignored the fact that the rich young ruler had just walked away from the offer of salvation. He had a lot going for him on the outside, but on the inside he was in trouble, but the disciples are just thinking about themselves. Hey, we've given up everything to follow you. What's in it for us? So Jesus teaches 
It's an important lesson, a hard-to-grasp lesson. Hey, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Those who look good here on the earth, who appear to have everything going for them, this is the kind of guy who was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple, that guy. That person will one day discover that if all they had was stuff here on this earth, they're going to lose everything if they don't know Jesus. But conversely, the folks like the disciples who give up everything in this world to follow Christ in this life, they're going to then discover that they have everything in the kingdom of heaven. They'll be first. The story's a great reminder that God is sovereign. He's in control, and we need to be thankful in all circumstances because we're not able to see everything that God is up to. But we can trust him. So Matthew launches into this story to help illustrate this concept And it's a story about a wealthy landowner who owns this huge vineyard. Now, let me be so clear on this. In this story, the landowner is God, okay? And the estate, the vineyard he's talking about, it's the kingdom of heaven. We can know that without a doubt. But when we want to apply this lesson, when we want to dig in and learn about true thankfulness and whether we have a grumbling spirit, then we need to go ahead and dig a little deeper. We need to kind of immerse ourselves into this story. So get ready to do that with me. Let's read the story together. Matthew chapter 20, we'll start in verses 1 to 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. He went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, will you also go into the vineyard? And whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and he did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out, and he found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Okay. To really apply the teaching, there's some observations we've got to make. First, we've got to remember, isn't a story about a rich landowner with a huge estate here on earth. This isn't a big vineyard out in California or some ranch out in Montana. This is a parable. We're talking about God here. So let's wrap our mind around the fact the landowner has two big things going for him. There's plenty of work to do at his vineyard. Not going to run out of work at his estate, and he has plenty of money. He can hire everybody in the world if he wants to, and he isn't going to exceed his budget for payroll here. So those two things are key. If we get that, plenty of work to be done, plenty of resources to take care of his workers, then we can shift our focus in the story and instead concentrate on the workers themselves and the task at hand and their motive in doing the job. Now, this is harvest time we're talking about. It has to be because it doesn't matter how many workers he hires. There's always enough work for everybody. And in the story, we see five different groups of workers. It says, first, the landowner goes out, and he hires some guys at the very beginning of the day. This is before 6 a.m., and that's good. I mean, you can say a lot of good things about that group of people, right? They're up early. They're looking for work. They negotiated a fair wage. They're the only group in this story to do so. They agreed to what was a good and a fair wage. All those things are great, right? We keep reading and we see those workers were not enough to complete this huge task that was at hand. So the landowner goes out again 
says it goes out about 9 a.m. Well, that's still good, right? Still a lot of people standing idle looking for work. Still a lot of work to be done. Still a lot of day to do it in. But this time, notice, there's no negotiation. Landowner just says, I'll pay you what's fair from my vast resources. And they say, okay. They take the offer. But it's still not enough workers. So the landowner goes back out again three hours later at noon. Well, at noon, those workers get the same offer as the 9 a.m. workers. Still not enough for harvest work, right? Still more time. Landowner goes out again, hires more folks. They get the same deal that the 9 a.m. and the 12 noon workers got. What's that deal? Hey, I'll be fair. And they're on board. And then this last group, these folks who were hired at the very end of the day. Did you notice this is a tough day? This is a grueling 12-hour work day. This fifth group is hired at the 11th hour. But they get the same deal. I'll pay you what's fair. And they agree. And they go and they work. It's a great deal for them. Maybe not as good a deal for the landowner, right? If you stop and think about his mindset that last group of workers, they don't represent a great deal of help to him, do they? From a business model, if you've studied this at all, the last group represents something called wasted potential. Text says they've been standing around idle all day. So what are we supposed to learn from the story? What are we supposed to see? Well, they're offered grace. Go ahead. Come on, work for an hour. For what's fair. Well, what does that represent? That's got to be faith. Okay. Whatever he says is fair, that's going to be okay. So there's grace there. There's faith there. Huge elements in this story we don't want to miss. Lots of work to do, lots of resources to cover it, grace, faith, and lots of compassion from the landowner, right? He didn't have to hire anybody. He could have ignored everybody. For sure he could have ignored everybody after that 6 a.m. group, right? But he didn't. So truly, everybody that got hired, they saw an act of grace. Now look what happens when the workday is over. It's time to pay up. There's some big surprises coming for these harvest workers. It's in verses 8 to 10. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay their wages. Get this, beginning with the last group to the first. And those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. Now, they end up getting paid in reverse order. That's, that's unusual. I don't know that it was unheard of. I think as they're all standing there, you know, the 6 a.m. group wouldn't be too worried at the start. They'd think, oh, well, sure, that last group, they're getting paid out of pocket change, you know, and, and they're saving the big bills for us, right? So imagine they're surprised when those 11th hour guys show up and they get a denarius. That was the standard rate for a full day's work. That was the deal that the 6 a.m. workers had negotiated for. How come these last workers were getting what the first workers were supposed to get? Now remember, this is a parable. It's all about explaining what happened in Matthew chapter 19. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. These stories aren't designed to be independent of one another. No, the landowner, it's God here in this parable, he has something else in mind. What he wants to do is expose the heart of the first workers. Only those first workers had a contract. Everybody else 
All the other groups just worked on the promise of fairness. So God, he's the landowner. He's wanting these last workers to see just how generous he can be to those people who trust him without having to have, you know, a contract or a deal in place. So this last group of workers, they get the full day's wage. Now, remember I said we've got to insert ourselves into the story. Do it with me at this point. Imagine yourself as one of the 6 a.m. workers. You're one of the folks who showed up there early and you've been busting your tail all day long. What are you thinking is going to happen for you? Imagine you're there and they call the, the 11th hour guys in, they give them a denarius. What are you doing? You're going, all right. Man, those guys got a denarius for an hour and you're doing the math in your head. But we work 12 hours, that's going to be carry the one 12 denarius. Man, this is a 12 denarius day for us. They are fired up. Verse 10 says they got the same thing they had negotiated for. They got what they were promised and what was fair and which just so happens to be exactly what everybody else got too, regardless of the amount of work they put in. So what did they do? Please remember, we're not here at church today. We're at a Grumblers Anonymous meeting. Look at verses 11 and 12. When they had received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. Are you imagining yourself in that scenario? Is this one of those passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, that you'd like to write out of the Bible? You're saying, sure, they're grumbling, but if I was in their shoes, I think I'd grumble too. I worked hard all day out in the blistering heat. What's in this for me? God is so good because he shows us the exact nature of their complaint, and it's the same nature of the disciples' complaint back in Matthew chapter 19. They say, you have made them equal to us. Back in verse 10, they had already told on themselves, we thought we would receive more. Now, because I'm a grumbler, I get it. Their argument sounds pretty good to me on the surface, and that's my problem. Because their argument is based on the standard of human comparison. Ultimately, you've got to realize they're not grumbling about the other workers. Their issue is with the landowner. They're forgetting that he's the one who hired them in the first place. Without him, they don't have a job at all. These other groups come along. He never promised to pay them anything more, anything less. He simply promised to give them a fair wage, which he did. Now, this is where God met me this week. If I truly see God as good and supreme and sovereign, and I said all those things standing here on this stage just last week, I used every one of those words to describe him. If I see him that way, then grumbling reflects poorly on whose character? Mine, not his. In this story, God didn't do anything but offer grace and opportunity and generosity and fairness. I mean, sitting here in the meeting today, it'd be really awkward for me to say, I think those guys have a legitimate beef. Man, you know, they should have got more. I don't think I can say that. They ought to go back to that boss and stand up for their rights. But I know out there in the work-a-day world, we can miss what God is up to. We can end up rooting for the wrong side because we struggle 
with something that we call fairness, but our inner motive is, is really envy or jealousy. We think other people aren't getting what they deserve. We're certainly not getting what we deserve. We work so hard. We receive so little in return. And that guy over there, he doesn't work at all, and he won the lottery. And so we grumble. And at that point, our problem is not with the guy who won the lottery, right? Our problem is with God. It's not with the girl at work who doesn't do any of her work and you have to cover her all the time. Our problem truly isn't with her. It's with God. Now, I understand. You know, if that girl at the company is breaking rules or, or if your boss is asking you to disobey God, then yes, you, you can address those issues with them, but God will be the judge. So we can do it without grumbling. For Christ followers, there's no place for grumbling. And we can know this from this parable. Look at how God responds to our grumbling. In verses 13 to 16. But he answered, and he said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with that which is my own? And he says, or is your eye envious because I'm generous? And so the last shall be first and the first last. If we're painfully honest, grumbling and complaining, they're, they're symptoms of a much bigger problem. We're mad at God. We think he was nicer or better or more generous to somebody else than he was to us. We will always think that we're the workers who showed up at 6 a.m., even when we're truthfully a lot more like the 11th hour workers. That's just part of our total depravity. We will always tend to overestimate our importance and underestimate the grace of God. Might be worthy of a tweet. I think I'll repeat that. We will always tend to overestimate our own importance and underestimate the grace of God. Primary teaching on this parable is really about final rewards, but that'll have to be a sermon for another time. For us, this Thanksgiving week, the focus is on examining our own motives. Why do we do what we do in this life? What's our motivation? If it's just rewards that we're after, then please understand this. If we've accepted the gift of eternal life from God, if we've accepted the offer of salvation by responding to his grace with faith, then we're going to end up in the kingdom of heaven. We'll get the reward. But then we've got to ask, are we going to go grumbling the whole way? Are we going to go always checking to see if our preferences are being met? Wanting to have our wants met? Listen, if we live like that on this earth, we are just asking for disappointment. We live in a fallen place with fallen people. Things aren't going to be fair when we walk around comparing ourselves to others. Or we could do this. In application, we could change our attitude and we could choose not to grumble. We could decide to do our work for the Lord like Paul instructs us in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. He says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Oh, I pray that I would have that attitude. 
instead of worrying about what's fair or worrying about what I'll get. I wish we could read a parable like Matthew chapter 20 and think back just a few chapters to what Jesus taught back in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38, where he revealed his huge heart for people. You probably know that passage. He says, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Far too often we look at the world around us with no compassion. We don't want to go gather the harvest. We talked last week about the example of John the Baptist and the wheat and the chaff. And I think what we do is we thank God that we've already been collected like wheat into the barn. And so now we want the barn to be really nice and heated. We want music we like in the barn and sermons we like from preachers we like the way we like them. And if we don't get those things, we're going to grumble. Is that the way it's supposed to be? Let me close with this, because it doesn't have to be that way, I promise you. There is hope. We don't have to live as grumblers. I think this passage suggests at least three things that will help us cure our grumbling spirits. I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time on these here, Because honestly, we can't deal with them from up here on the stage. These are rubber meets the road kind of things. These are the things that we're going to have to do on our own. But listen, if you're being convicted, like me, that you'd have to show up every week at a Grumblers Anonymous meeting, then you can start to practice these things. And the first thing is we've got to remember to thank God in everything. We have to remember to thank God for the blessings we've already experienced because God is good. We are blessed. He is generous. Those first workers in the parable, they honestly forgot that if God hadn't shown up, they wouldn't have a job. Just as Paul reminded us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we've got to be thankful in all things. Second, we've got to stop judging ourselves based on the way God treats someone else. God chooses to bless someone else in a more obvious way than he blesses you then that's his business, right? He's God. He can deal with us any way that he chooses. I, for one, am thankful he chooses to deal with me at all. And lastly, it would do us good to remember that God always rewards faith and not work. God is about the faithfulness in our work, not about the production in our work. We may not even realize we struggle in that area, but if we'll examine our heart, we probably do. We say, well, I go to this many Bible studies, or I spend this much time praying. And we say that, and what we really mean is, so I'll probably earn this type of reward. That's how we see that working. Do we understand that's not how it works in God's economy? From a business standpoint, yes, that's it. We're production-oriented. You either produce the way your boss wants you to produce, or you get fired. But where the world looks at production, God looks at faith. God looks at hearts. He inspects our motives. And so the world asks, what did you do? And God asks, why did you do it? Were you working heartily for my glory? The world says, show me the money. Show me the resources. Show me the output. And God says, no, show me your heart. 
We can't tell where others stand with the Lord by looking at their production. We just can't. That's what Jesus means when he teaches that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. One of those 6 a.m. workers said, you've made them equal to us. This parable is truly all about equality, just not the way we think of it. It's about the equality of faithfulness. And in the end, God is good. God is just. No one will be underpaid. In the end, God is good. God is generous. So everyone who enters into the kingdom of heaven, everyone is going to be surprised at just how generous he is. I'll wrap up our meeting today. I'll ask, are we thankful? Are we thankful in all things? Are we looking for the opportunities to go out and work in the harvest for God's glory, knowing that he's generous? Are we standing around in the barn with the other wheat? Are we standing out idle in the workplace, grumbling, things aren't fair, I don't really like things this way, why is the world such a broken place? I can't see hearts. I'm glad I can't. So I don't know your response to that question, but God does. Let me pray. Father God, help us. Help me, Lord, to be thankful in all things. When we come face to face with your word like this, God, it's so clear that you desire the very, very best for us. And Father God, I confess and I apologize for standing in my own way so often. God, give me your heart. Help me to be the kind of man you want me to be for your glory. I know I'm not that man now. But it's your desire that I would grow and become more sanctified and become more and more like your son so that you can get the glory and I cannot worry about what's fair if you're generous to somebody else. God, I pray that for the folks in this body. I pray that for the folks who you're convicting through your Holy Spirit. Or if you're using me, you're using your word. God, let us be used by you. Are we thankful in all things? God, I love you. I just ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.